0: Pastor Mark here with the uh, Real Leaders Podcast. Very, very excited to introduce you to a new friend of mine, somebody I love very much, Dr. R.T. Kendall, and you are there, my friend. Now, let me ask you this, how long have you been married for? And your wife is sitting right there, so as long as she's there, we're gonna have her say hi. uh,
1: On the 28th of June, 62 years.
0: 62 years married. Anything she would like to add to that? Any words of wisdom for the, the newly married?
1: I just want to say I was two years old when I got
0: married. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are adorable. First time we met, I think was on the phone, it was uh, Steve Strang at Charisma, a, a longtime yep. friend of yours, a new friend to me. He connected us, you called, and then I got to fly out and sit, I mean, it's interesting, I get to see you right now, I got to come right to your study where you're, you're sitting with your wife. And had, I thought I was going to chat with you for an hour. I think we spent the majority of a day together, and it was super, super, super fun. How often do you and your wife sit there in the study, read the Bible, pray, drink tea, hang out? How, how much time is spent these days doing that?
1: Do you want the truth? Yes, sir. Not often. I, the, I hadn't thought of it till this second. I would say the literal truth is, since this uh, uh, lockdown, particularly, about... I would say 12 hours a day.
0: Really? <laughs> yeah. It's a yeah. good thing you like each other.
1: Well, yeah, you know, honestly, I think, you know, from about, uh, yeah, it's about 12, maybe 14 hours a day, uh, I do my Bible reading and and praying here, she does, and then I, I, I excuse myself for a little bit of my own prayer time, uh, but uh, we're right here, and... Uh, <laughs> When we get bored, which happens in the evenings, watch old movies together. I don't think you'd do anything so decadent as that. But, but we, we
0: do
1: walk a mile every day. Oh, well, we walk, walk a mile a day. And I do, uh, listen, I'm going to make you feel guilty.
0: Please do. I appreciate that.
1: I do 21 push-ups a day. How I, many did you do today?
0: I prayed about it. I haven't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so how, how old are you, R.T.?
1: I'll be 85 the 13th of July.
0: So you, you do 21 push-ups a day. Why 21? Was 22 just the limit, or why 21?
1: Well, I wanted to make sure I did 20, <laughs> so I do 21 to make sure I do at least 20 every day.
0: And walk a mile and, sp- and spend time in prayer and spend 12 hours a day with your wife.
1: And I wow. get weight every morning uh, to make easy. sure that I am stay right at 168. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I do. It's in England. That's twelve stone. Twelve. Myself every morning. Oh, Oh, it weighed
0: too. That—that is a very good wife if she allows herself to also be weighed every morning. For those who are turning into the podcast, please don't do that. We want you to be married sixty-two years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you kids are. Absolutely adorable. And I was gonna ask you, RT, for those, many are familiar with you, you've written a lot, you've been preaching a lot, but maybe for those who are not, just a little bit about your conversion, your education, your ministry. It's it's really an amazing journey that God has had you on for a very long time.
1: Oh, conversion, age six, on an Easter Sunday morning, uh, before church, I started crying. I remember it as though it were yesterday. I said to my father, I want to be a Christian. And my dad had the presence of mind to say, well, we don't need to wait till we get to church for that. Amen. So I knelt at my parents' bedside, confessed my sins, and I felt so good. And that was my conversion. Hmm. And uh, that was, uh, well, let's see, it's about 70 can't I can't do math like uh, you? For-
0: I, I went to public school. You don't want me doing any math for you. But I would Let's say see. if you're if you're 82 minus six, so you've been a Christian for 76 years. Uh
1: yeah. Well <laughs> i mean and that's stupid, isn't it? Look here. What it this is year 2020, 2020, 2020. minus twenty-twenty twenty
0: minus seventy-six?
1: No, well one nine four one equals seventy nine. I've been a Christian seventy nine years. Wow. Wow. Yeah, we'll we'll be in in uh, actually it was on it was the April the fifth, so I guess six and a half years to be technically. April it was in nineteen forty
0: two. Forty two? So what were some of the political leaders in the world in 1942? Because everybody podcasting this, this is in the history books, but this was your life.
1: Well, it was Franklin Roosevelt and my dad loved him. Hmm. Uh, He, in fact, on the day Roosevelt died, my father cried. Hmm. I'll never forget that. And then uh, Harry Truman was the president. And uh, uh, so I, I, I even saw Harry Truman because I went to the inauguration of his presidency in 1948, and the first person I voted for was Dwight Eisenhower, Wow! and then I voted for Nixon. I shouldn't admit to that.
0: We forgive uh, you. We're New Covenant. Jesus died uh, for all uh, kinds of stuff.
1: So I won't tell you who I voted for last. I don't want to lose uh, too many friends, but uh, I, I am a bit of a political animal, if, if you want to know, so I, I, I'm I up to date on everything is going as we speak.
0: It is a crazy time. You have lived a lot, my friend. So how did you get into ministry and training to be a Bible teacher? How did, what what was that story? Well, I went, I was brought up in the Church of the Nazarene and- uh, And you became reformed out of that?
1: Well, (laughs) there's two stories. The first, (laughs) how I became a preacher. Uh, I was at Trevecca, wondering if I was called to preach and I wanted something dramatic. I wanted Michael the angel to give me a tap on the shoulder, something supernatural. But God used a Scotsman instead, uh, John Logan, Dr. John Logan from Glasgow. And he spent time with me. I said, how will I know if I'm a preacher or called to preach? He said, you are, I said, well, how do I know? He said, you are. And he said it three times. And you know what? I believed it. I never looked back. And it was so unsensational that was the disappointment. But no, Michael the <laughs> Archangel. And then three months later, I'm actually offered a church. Wow, of a, a hundred people. How, how, Palmer,
0: how, how, how old were you at this time, RT? Were you still 19, a, nineteen? Nineteen. You're going to be a senior 19, pastor.
1: And uh, my brand, uh, my grandmother buys me a brand new car, Chevrolet, so that I would go to Palmer, Tennessee, about 115 miles away, near Chattanooga, from Nashville every Friday evening and come back Sunday nights. Uh, And uh, so I was a student pastor. One Monday morning, this is the thing I think you will be interested to know, one Monday morning, and I've told this in more than one book, I'll try to be brief. I had a Damascus Road experience. It was not my conversion, it was when I was baptized with the Spirit. I saw the face of Jesus as I drove literally i mean more real than you are right now hmm. and he was interceding for me at the right hand of god Wow! and uh i will never forget it as long as i live and we had a, i was all my way back to nashville i just watched there it was and then just coming into a little town called smyrna i i felt the presence of god i felt a surge of warmth go into my chest and a peace that I did not know you could have in this life. And that day, that day, my theology changed.
0: Hmm.
1: It was supernatural. I've had I've known other people to have an experience like this, but it didn't affect their theology. In my case it did. And before the day was over, I knew I was eternally saved and I knew I was chosen. And that was just came just like that. And I thought I discovered something new because I wasn't brought up to believe like that. Uh, it was certainly not what my parents taught. It wasn't what my church taught. And uh, sadly, a few months later, my grandmother took the car back, and uh, when she could see, I wasn't going to be in that denomination forever. Uh, I do want to say that I have great respect for my old denomination. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you something. Mart Lloyd-Jones, my mentor, used to say to me, don't forget your Nazarene background. Hmm. He actually added these words, it is what has saved you.
0: Wow.
1: That's what he said. And here's why he said that. Nazarenes were like the early Methodists. You know, they experienced God. They believed in forgiveness of sins and uh, witness of the spirit. And they preached with power and unction. They didn't have perfect theology, but so much of what they believed was powerful and Dr. Lloyd-Jones knew a little bit about that denomination, and he said, it's what has saved you from these cold, he would call them perfectly orthodox, perfectly useless Calvinists, and the reason he chose me, to succeed him. <laughs> I see your eyes looking wow. heavenly. Wow,
0: yeah, no, you um, can say this in your 80s, I, I yeah, you just go for it, because well, m- many don't know, you took over for Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel.
1: No, 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 he... Uh, had already retired uh, when I knew him, Uh, and uh, there was another man that succeeded him, stayed there four years. And actually, in the first days when I met Lloyd-Jones, I had no idea I'd be at Westminster Chapel. We just became friends, like father and son. I was a student at Oxford. I don't know if you know that, but I went to England, did my doctorate, and the whole time I was at Oxford, I had Lloyd-Jones, almost like a second supervisor. I mean, he would read my stuff and comment and we became very good friends and then someone suggested to him that i preach at westminster chapel one day because they were without a minister and you know what he said direct quote theologian you know but have him (laughs) (laughs) because he always saw me as a future professor or something like that and he never heard me preach he just knew me and he just said, well, yeah, I'll have him one day. That won't hurt. He's a theologian, but it's okay. Have him once. Well, do you know what? They asked me to stay. Hmm. And he called me the next day. He said, what did you do? I said, I just preached, doctor. Well, when I agreed to go for six months, he came to hear me preach. And he called me that same evening. And here is a direct verbatim. You're a born preacher your place is not in a university, it's in the pulpit. And he spread that word all over. So the truth is he did put me there, but it's not the way you put it because there'd been somebody else there for several years. And so I agreed to go for six months and then they asked, could they vote on me? ended up staying 25 years at Westminster Chapel.
0: And in that time, you have been really in a unique position, I think a forerunner to what we would call today kind of the Reform Charismatic movement or the Charismatic Reform movement, depending upon which you, you know, sort of emphasize. Why do you believe it is important to have both, you know, sound doctrine and good scriptural rooting, but also the power of the spirit? And many settle for one or the other. And you've you've sort of been living between those two worlds most of all of your adult life.
1: Well, in nineteen ninety-two uh, we had what I think was the first Word Spirit conference at uh, uh, in Wimbledon uh, in London. No, not Wimbledon, Wembley. <laughs> I get those mixed up all the time. Wembley, a uh, conference center. A well-known prophetic man. I don't think I want to mention his name. He ended not very well. Uh, but he and I began a uh, a ministry, and uh, we had the first Word Spirit conference. And on that day. I made this statement that there has, it seems to me, been a silent divorce between the Word and the Spirit. Uh, Now, when there's a divorce, sometimes the children stay with the mother, sometimes the children stay with the father. Well, in this divorce, you have those on the Word side and those on the Spirit side. What's the difference? Well, those on the Word side, they say, we need to get back to the Gospel. Earnestly contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints uh remember the uh reformation martin luther justification by faith calvin sovereignty of god and until we get back to this the honor of god's name will not be restored well what's wrong with that emphasis nothing. nothing that's exactly right but then you've got spirit people what's their message we need to get back to the book of acts signs wonders miracles gifts of the spirit in operation uh get into peter's shadow you're healed lie to the holy spirit struck dead and until we have power like that, the honor of God's name will not be restored. Well, what's wrong with that emphasis? Nothing. It's exactly right. But the problem is, and uh, Mark, in my old age, I've been given to travel all over the world. It's just worked out that way. Nearly, wherever I go, you, it's one or the other. You're in a word church or you're in a spirit church. Hmm. If it's a word church. It's usually quiet and in awe and they bow their heads. It's strong doctrine. You're in a spirits church, (laughs) nobody's bowing their heads, there's noise before the service and then you hear guitars going. And (laughs) what is needed is not one or the other, it's both. And um, that is what I call for, hope for. That's my DNA, Word and Spirit. And I'm sure it's just like you. I think that's why you like me. That's why I like you.
0: Well, I was shocked and we hung out for the better part of that first day. Theologically, I agree with you. And um, and I fit comfortably within the reformed tradition though. I don't know if you want to get into it, but the five points of Calvinism would not be my first round draft pick for the best articulation of a reformed view of God and the gospel. Um, but then most of my friends, including my overseers with Pastor Robert Morris and Pastor Jimmy Evans, are charismatic, Pentecostal, love them very, very, very much. I'm very, very grateful for, for those friends. And so when we're talking theology, I tend to feel at home with my Reform friends. When it's worship, life, relationship, prayer, I want to hang out with my charismatic friends. Uh, well, yeah.
1: you know, my friends are charismatics. Uh, I could say a lot about this. And I've got to be careful. I don't want to say anything I shouldn't. But uh, I have a number of books and articles written against me. They're all by Reformed men, every one of them, no exceptions. No Charismatic is ever written against me.
0: Why do you think, they, for, why do you think the, the, the Reformed tend to be more critical than the Charismatic? What, what, do you, is there a reason for that? You know,
1: you tell me. I, I've asked that question. I don't know that there's a connection. But you mentioned you're pretty much all the way with the Reformed theology. I know what you meant. Did you realize that my Oxford thesis, which was endorsed by Martin Lloyd-Jones, showed that John Calvin did not believe in limited atonement? Hmm. And uh, we don't have time to go into that in detail. Well,
0: y- yes, we do. Yes, we do, RT. You can do whatever well then, you want, my friend.
1: Well, I will just tell you that a very well-known Reformed theologian, he and I preached together, and Northern Ireland, some years ago. And he actually said to me, RT, I want to restore you to your reformed brethren. And I said, fine, fine, good, wonderful. And then he wanted to sort me out and show me that I must believe in limited atonement. I said, I used to believe that because I just accepted that you have to take the logic. And I said, this is not true. The Bible says Christ died for all. But then he would say, well, do you believe that uh, Jesus died in order to to save only the elect? Well, that was an ultimate purpose. Well, then you believe in limited atonement. I said, no. I said, look, stay with scripture. You don't have to be logical. Stay with scripture. Christ died for all. It's obvious. And I said, this is what Calvin believed. Do you know what? He got angry. He got angry and he made me feel the worst I've ever felt in my life. It was so oppressive. He ran me down and began to pick me to pieces. And you know what he said?
0: Hmm.
1: Quote, I can't believe that a man with a PhD from Oxford would believe what you do. I said, well, whatever. And (laughs) he just put me down. And I've never seen him since. And he's very famous. You probably know who it is. But it's been hard. And the reformed world will have nothing to do with me. Partly because of what I've taught about Calvin, partly because I had Arthur Blessed to preach for me at Westminster Chapel, there are other reasons. Uh, you can you can ask me anything you like, uh, but it's been hard. So, my friends have been charismatics. And by the way, you mentioned Robert Morris, lovely man. You know when I hear him preach, superb, superb. And I've preached for him. Mm-hmm. I preached my sermon. Well, he he, he loves
0: you. I mean, when I've had a conversation with Pastor Robert, he really he really appreciates you, and he appreciated well, your book, g- Total Give Forgiveness. Give him
1: my love because I haven't seen him for a number of years, but I think the world of him.
0: Well, he's a he's a dear he's a dear man. He's a dear friend, and he's a he's a dear pastor to my family. And I guess you know, like you, I, I don't have the academic credentialing that you do. I'm not I'm not trained at that level but I do care a lot about theology and doctrine and, and have tried to you know, argue for that as, as, as best I'm able. But I find myself like you over in the charismatic world and some of my more theologically oriented friends will think, okay, if you're hanging out with them, you must be compromised. You must agree with everything they teach. You must be endorsing them. How does that differ from actually loving people who love Jesus and maybe earning the right to have theological conversations to see if you can't be an influence?
1: I have had not to compromise one inch because I'm sure there are churches that will not have me because of my theology but those who do have me they want me to preach whatever I want to hmm. and I do and uh, I've even got so that uh, my publisher almost will let me write anything <laughs> uh, I've written a book Once Saved, Always Saved And uh, the day they'll publish that you'll know revival has truly come <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's awesome. Of all the things, how, much, uh, how many books have you read? I mean, you've, you've preached a lot, you've teached a lot, you've given your whole life to God's word, you're a Bible guy. And I, I just wanna say too, I think what we're talking about, part of the underlying is, there's a difference between biblical theology and systematic theology, and it, you have to determine which is your priority. If systematic theology is your priority, you're gonna, you're gonna reason yourself to certain conclusions that you may not be able to arrive just through the Bible. And so, you know, I appreciate your commitment to, to biblical theology. But of all the things you've written, what is the thing that is kind of turned into for you? If there is a life message for R.T. Kendall or the, the well, thing. Well, first that,
1: of all, you asked how many. I asked John Stott. I said, how many books have you written? His answer was, that's like the sin of David numbering the people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I know how many I've written, or pretty much so. It's over 70.
0: Wow. What was your question then? So, based on the books you've read, is there one that has kind of turned into your life message, or that you keep being bringing back to preaching or teaching, or it's it's really the heart of of what? If, if you had one sermon to preach or one book to recommend, what would that be from from you?
1: It's a hard question. First of all, the book I would like to be remembered by fifty years from now. Whatever happened to the gospel?
0: Hmm.
1: Uh, I wrote that uh, on the five hundredth anniversary of. Uh, Luther's discovery uh, and his the 95 theses he, he wrote. That's the book I would want to be remembered by, but the book I'll will probably be remembered by is Total Forgiveness. Uh, that's sold a lot. That's my best seller, Total Forgiveness.
0: And so in that book, Total Forgiveness, and I, I read it, I took a year and a half in one of the most difficult did times.
1: T- did it take you that long to read it?
0: No, it took me that long to forgive. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I, it was in a difficult season, most difficult season for our, our family. And I, I just wanted to do a deep dive study in forgiveness, read everything I could, look up all the scriptures because I wanted to make sure I I believe that unforgiveness is the heart of the demonic. I believe that Satan and demons are never forgiven and they're never forgiving. And I believe that's why the Bible says, don't give the devil a foothold, you know, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. I think, I think it actually is a spiritual warfare and a demonic entry point. Right. And You're so, right. so I, did, I did read it and I read a lot of others. And maybe just for those who are listening that are, are and this is gonna be largely ministry leaders, um, ministry leaders are sinned against a lot. The, the, the pastor, the ministry leader, their spouse, their kids. And sometimes they're not allowed to say or respond or do much because it would be considered gossip or divisive. But I think a lot of pastors struggle with unforgiveness. I think a lot of ministry leaders' spouses and kids really struggle with unforgiveness. Take that concept of total forgiveness and whatever comes into your mind. Just speak to those who are ministry leaders and families. Why, why is that such an important practice for us?
1: Well, I'll be glad to, to answer that. But you would want to know that in the darkest hour of my life, darkest our, our lives, Louise and me, was while I was at Westminster Chapel. Uh, what happened was unfair, very hard. I thought my future was finished. And I was angry and I was bitter. An old friend from Romania, have you ever heard of Joseph Tsun? No, sir. Well, anyway, he lives in Oregon now, but he happened to be in London. And because I knew he wouldn't tell anybody, I decided to tell him the whole story. Fully expect him to put his arm around me and say, R.T., you want to be angry? Get it out of your system. I think that's what I wanted. If I could narrow 25 years in London down to 15 minutes, it's when Joseph looked at me and said, R.T., you must totally forgive them. Until you totally forgive them, you will be in chains. Release them and you will be released. But so nobody had ever talked to me like that in my life, faithful of the wounds of a friend. And it was the hardest thing I've ever had to do, it was the best thing I ever did. And uh, I never dreamed I'd write a book on it one day, but uh, it's 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 the book people remember. And usually, if I haven't preached at a church before, they all want that one first, unless they want tithing. <laughs> I've <written laughs> tithing, too. Yeah, so, they
0: always like the guest to hit that, you know.
1: Well, here's, I would give seven proofs of total forgiveness. Number one, you don't tell anybody what they did. Number two, you don't let them feel threatened by you. Number three, you help them to forgive themselves. Four, you let them save face. Five, you protect them from their darkest secret. Six, you remember it's a life sentence you don't just do it once you got to do it the rest of your life and seven you pray for them and really mean it you don't just say god i commit them to you 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 have to ask god to bless them and mean it in your heart of hearts until you do that you haven't forgiven but once you've crossed over that that's a big threshold that's that's the big one when you can pray for them and sincerely ask god to forgive them you're there.
0: And when we were, I mean, you're sitting on your couch today with your best friend. And when I was sitting there with you and we had a conversation, you, I mean, I'd read the book and I'm familiar with your teaching and I love you and appreciate it, but you shared the story of Joseph and then you shared something at the end that literally was incredibly insightful for me as a ministry leader. And that is that Joseph's anointing was tied to his forgiveness of his brothers oh, and yeah. his family
1: yes oh yes had he not done that god would never have used him
0: so explain that my friend yeah dig into that
1: okay well joseph was bitter uh and on top of the way his brothers treated him he was put in prison because he was falsely accused of adultery with part of his wife and uh and then uh, when he's joined by two prisoners, uh, he tells, to, tells them their dreams and says to one of them, when, I get, when your dream is fulfilled and, and you get your job back, say to Pharaoh that I, Joseph, don't deserve to be here. I think that's what God said. You're going to need more time here. <laughs> and uh, when Joseph had totally forgiven his brothers, Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, everything, God looked down from heaven and said, Joseph, I think you're ready. Hmm. And overnight, he is made prime minister of Egypt. And the interesting thing is he was never vindicated.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, his, you know, his record was never cleared. His charges yeah, were never reversed.
1: Yeah. It just goes to show that God can overrule things that you think will keep you from ever being used. And And Joseph became the prime minister of Egypt and the hero of heroes and the reason was that he had totally forgiven and he shows that when he first meets his brothers and he hadn't seen them in 22 years
0: well then he's emotional because he had forgiven them and he still loved them but he couldn't trust them yet he needed to see if they were trustworthy but but his affection was there i think he
1: did it for their sake he put his cup in benjamin's bag to see what they would do about it and if they had not changed, they would have just looked at Benjamin and said, sorry, old boy, we're leaving, you're finished. But no, they stayed with Benjamin came back and Joseph could see they had changed and they could see for themselves, they were not the same men they were 22 years before when they were going to kill their brother.
0: Mm -hmm. And so, you know, from more of the, I mean, the reform folks tend to focus a lot on forgiveness, justification, substitutionary atonement, you know, all of those great doctrines that we both hold dear for just, forgiveness. Just,
1: they mention forgiveness. They don't mean forgiving one another. They mean God forgiving you. That's the kind of forgiveness they teach. They do not teach total forgiveness.
0: Okay, explain that- the difference there because I uh, i was reading one of the, in, in one of the studies I did, it was reading one of the founders, I won't you know speak pejoratively and name someone, um, but they said that you can't forgive someone unless they repent. And therefore, if the person dies without repenting, or if they were anonymous and you don't know who it was that abused you or whatever the case may be, and or you're not seeing the signs of repentance, you can't forgive until they repent, that their repentance is contingent, that your forgiveness rather is contingent on their repentance. How is that different than total forgiveness?
1: Well, there's no comparison. First of all, when Jesus said, if you forgive not men their trespasses, your heavenly father will not forgive you yours, That was the conclusion of his introducing the Lord's Prayer, which has the petition in it, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The Lord's Prayer is said in what he taught about the kingdom of God and our inheritance in the kingdom. It has nothing to do with whether you're going to heaven or hell. Look, if you had to forgive before you got saved, you'd never be saved. Mm -hmm. This is for the Christian. This is for the one who wants to enter in to Uh, his or her inheritance in the kingdom of God. And that's teaching Reformed people uh, generally don't know anything about. But I can tell you it has nothing to do with whether you become a Christian or nobody would be saved. Mm -hmm. Nobody. Uh, And it would also mean that you're saved by works because there's nothing greater than this. And if that's what gets you to heaven, then you can forget faith alone. You're saying it's faith plus works. Yeah. And you're... Back, back to way, the way you were brought up, because I think you told me you were once a Catholic.
0: Yeah, I was Catholic, went to Catholic school, was an altar boy, and it was always Jesus plus someone or something else. Jesus plus yeah. the priest, Jesus plus the Eucharist, Jesus plus.
1: Well, those Reformed people who teach uh, repentance before faith, first of all, they dismiss Calvin out of their lives in that in one stroke, because Calvin often, always emphasized faith before repentance. And uh, we believe Uh, And and trust Christ alone and his blood. That's what saves you. Repentance is a lifelong thing. And when do you know you've ever fully repented? I find the same things all all the time I need to repent of. And if that was what precedes becoming a Christian, then it is salvation by works.
0: I totally agree, I, I'm 100% with you that regeneration precedes faith and repentance, that God does his work before any of it. And my, I always like to use language, God's work for us, in us and through us. And so even the fruit of a redeemed life is still the work of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. So within that, a lot of the reform folks will talk about, so back to the story of Joseph, they'll talk about you know forgiveness and then a lot of your charismatic folks, our friends, Pentecostal charismatic, will talk about anointing. And how in the life of Joseph does sort of that, you know, reform focus on forgiveness and that charismatic Pentecostal focus on anointing, how are those related?
1: Well, it was Joseph's forgiving his brothers and everyone else that brought on the anointing he had. The anointing is attached to my forgiving you or anybody else. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a direct connection And not only forgiveness, but uh, Ephesians 4.30 talks about grieving the Holy Spirit by bitterness. We can forfeit the anointing temporarily when we get angry or point the finger or want to give a person a piece of our mind. And uh, the the dove of the Holy Spirit just leaves. And uh, uh, I've, I've written a book on sensitivity of the Spirit. I've written several books on the Holy Spirit. One's called Pigeon Religion. Hmm. Uh, The the dove is the symbol of the Holy Spirit, the pigeon, the counterfeit. And uh, uh, I don't guess you want to go into all that now. But the anointing is attached to the degree to which I forgive those who have hurt me.
0: And so for those who are ministry leaders in their families, and they're saying, I would love to live under God's anointing. (laughs) but they have not yet taken that step of forgiveness. And sometimes it can be the leader. Sometimes it can be the spouse. Sometimes it can be the kids because church hurt is real. And if there was war in heaven and there was war in Jesus' ministry, there's going to be war in our ministry. And so for those who are listening that are ministry leaders, spouses or kids, what practical advice would you have for them to cross that threshold of forgiveness so they could live under God's anointing on their life and ministry?
1: Well, first of all, God will not bend the rules for any of us. We may think that he will. Uh, And we may think, well, Lord, you know that what I have been through, you wouldn't expect me to forgive that. And the truth is, I say, if we've got somebody here tonight that you've suffered more than anybody in your state, and it can be proved, and we all agree no one has suffered like you, you may therefore say, ah, well, God doesn't want me to forgive that. He wouldn't expect it. And the answer is, the greater the suffering, the greater the anointing.
0: Okay, explain and, that. That's huge. That's, that, is, that is monumental.
1: Well, I remember receiving a letter from the north of England where the lady described what her son-in-law had done to her daughter and grandchildren, and it was horrible. It was awful. You, you never read anything like it. And then at the end of the letter, she says, does God expect me to forgive him? And it wasn't easy to write back and say, yep, exactly. And I would say to people today, if your husband or wife was unfaithful to you, if you were abused as a child, uh, if you've been betrayed by your best friend, uh, if you've been the object of racial prejudice, we could go on and on and on. Take it with both hands and see, you have a word from the angels. You know what it is? congratulations. Because if you've suffered like that and can forgive, wow, you've got an anointing greater than anybody around you because you have a promise they don't have because they haven't suffered like you have. Hmm. And uh, if one can forgive anything, I don't care what it is, and the harder it is to forgive, the greater the anointing will come. I guarantee that. And chances are that somebody listening right now What you've been through we all would be very sympathetic with you but you don't realize that you've been given a promise of greater anointing than anybody so take it with both hands and and forgive them and watch what god does
0: so if the forgiveness really contributes to god's spirit flowing freely for anointing how does unforgiveness open someone up to the demonic to the counterfeit to the opposite
1: it certainly does. Uh, you already quoted from 2 Corinthians 2. Uh, Paul said, uh, don't let Satan take advantage of you, uh, because the very way he do it is through unforgiveness. And by the way, it doesn't need to be a lifelong thing. It can happen in a day. I'll tell you a story. It'll take a minute or two, but you'll, mm-hmm. you'll be glad to hear it. When I was at Westminster Chapel, I always started my Sunday morning sermon Preparation on Monday morning. And that's the way I did for 25 years. It happened only once. It was now Saturday. Hmm. I hadn't studied all week. I didn't get a chance. I was preaching all over England. And Saturday morning, I hadn't cracked a book. I said, Lord, please, please make up for the lost week. You know I've been busy. Please help me to get a sermon today. It was nine o'clock that morning. I'll never forget it. Louise and I got into an argument I mean it was a dandy I mean she was horrible <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm i going to tell you I slammed the door went to my desk opened my Bible and started going through the pages I said Lord give me a sermon please deal with that woman and by 11 o'clock I had nothing but a blank sheet of paper Lord please help me please help me 12, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. Lord, please. I had nothing. I had nothing. I was in a state of panic. You know that what I say tomorrow will be tape recorded and go all over the world. Please help me. 3 o'clock, nothing. At 4 o'clock, I decided I only could do one thing. I went into the kitchen, and there she was. I can remember her now, standing by the refrigerator. And she was crying. I said, honey. I'm sorry. It was all my fault. She said, Well wasn't all your fault. It's partly my fault. I said, No, it was all my fault, and I am so sorry. We hugged, we kissed. I went back to the same desk, same blank sheet of paper, and I promise you, in forty-five minutes I had everything I needed for Sunday. Hmm. Why? The dove came down. I couldn't write the thoughts fast enough. Uh, They were coming from everywhere. I mean, well, from heaven, but I couldn't believe how many thoughts I got. And in 45 minutes, I had my sermon. What would normally take several days, I got in 45 minutes. That's just an example. My bitterness delayed any good preparation. And that's what I mean by anointing. When the anointing comes on you, you can think clearly, you get thoughts. And uh, that's the way we should all preach. And I've learned over the years he won't bend the rules for me and he won't for you or anybody else. You you actually have to develop an appreciation for what I call the ungrieved Holy Spirit. You don't want to grieve him. He will get upset with you and just leave you to yourself and you look at the Bible and you stare at it for an hour and get nowhere. But when he is ungrieved, you apologize, you do what you have to do to put things right, then your mind flows. And that's the way I have lived for many, many years. And it works.
0: R.T., I love you. I appreciate your friendship. I think we could have a much longer conversation. But I think that this is a very sacred, very special, very significant insight for all ministry leaders. And oftentimes we are trying to focus and strategize on how to be effective in the future. And we have not forgiven pains and problems and perils from the past. And I think what you just shared, I think will set a lot of people free. I think it's a good message for pastors and leaders to go to their spouses, their kids, apologize, repent, and to bring that flow of repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation into their families, starting with their marriages and kids, and then from there to flow into their churches so that there can be health from the inside out. Would you be willing, uh, I think I'm gonna close it there if it's okay with you, and just have you pray for the ministry leaders who are listening, that anything that they need to forgive, that the Holy Spirit would bring that to mind, anyone they need to forgive, that the Holy Spirit would bring them to mind. And just as you, Demonstrated with your illustration anybody that they need to apologize to, ask forgiveness of starting with their spouse or their kids that, that the Holy Spirit would lead them to do that in a healthy way'd
1: be glad to do that Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of being on this program with Mark. Thank you for Mark for his love and his kindness. I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus upon any listening right now for their cleansing. And that you would overrule every weakness that they have. Enable that person right now to let it go. To let them utterly off the hook. Never again to point the finger. Totally to forgive. And they begin by telling nobody. They will not let that person be afraid of them. You will enable them to forgive themselves. As Joseph said to his brothers, for them to forgive themselves. Help them to let the other person save face instead of rubbing their nose in it. Give them grace to keep from telling what they know that would destroy that person. Give them grace to see they've got to keep this up because once is not enough. The devil will come back day after tomorrow and that we forgive on and on and let that person. Pray before the Most High God with transparent honesty for them to be blessed and not getting caught. We're not asking that someone is exposed. Bless them by letting them not get caught just as you've helped us from getting caught. And so grant that that kind of grace will flow from everyone listening to me Guide them by your spirit, you who are never too late, never too early, but always just on time. Come to the rescue of that person in this immediate need. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Amen. Thank you, Artie. I love you, my friend. Thank you for pastoring pastors today, and thank you for blessing me. And thank you, Luis, for joining us as well.
1: Well, thank you. you. And call me anytime. Are you coming to see me in Nashville this year?
0: I hope so. I was planning on coming down to teach at an event. It's gotten rescheduled. As soon as I have confirmation of date, I will contact you. If you're in town, I'll make my flights work to get any time I can possibly get with you and I'll make you a deal. I'll bring Grace with me this time and we'll double date.
1: Oh, that's all right. But do do tell her hello. I don't know how you got her, you ugly thing. You can
0: fool some of the people some of the time and that's how most of us get a wife.
1: Yeah. Well, as John F. Kennedy used to say, life's not fair.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Blessings to you, my friend. Love you very much. Thank you for your time. Love you.
1: Thank you. You've been very kind. Bye-bye.
0: Blessings. Bye-bye.